Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. When you cannot trust a sermon title, when you cannot trust a sermon title, if you were listening last night, we learned a valuable lesson, never trust a sermon title, because sometimes the sermon title doesn't really tell you what you are about to hear. If you don't know what I'm talking about, stay tuned and you will. But for now, welcome everyone. It is Thursday, September the 28th, 2023. It is currently 424 p.m. Central Time and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. It it was such a good idea, right? I thought it was a good idea. I mean, it was simple. Wait, we're not having in-person services at Victory Baptist Church. We are currently in a series on dispensationalism. So to make up for not having an in-person service, let's go live from the studio and let's, let's do a sermon review on a sermon That basically asks a question, according to the title, is dispensationalism vital? Okay, that sounds like a good sermon to review. It would fit perfectly. They're going to make an argument that dispensationalism is vital. So I'm assuming they're going to talk about dispensationalism, how it's vital. They're they're going to really offer some great information. So we know our, I know that, look, it's my own fault, but my rules for sermon reviews are very simple. We choose a sermon at random and I do not listen to it in advance so that it feels like we're listening to it together in real time and I'm hitting pause and we're talking. That That's the way. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. So, someone just asked, has the word dispensationalism been used yet? You know what? To be honest, I don't know if they've even actually used the word dispensationalism. Maybe once at the very beginning, I, 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 you know, to be honest, I don't even know. That's, that's actually pretty funny. I, I don't know, but I, I thought it would be, Hey, if this sir, I mean, if this sermon is about dispensationalism, let's do so. But of course, I don't listen to it in advance because I really do want to create that idea that we're just sitting down together and you're like, Oh, oh, let's listen to a sermon. Okay. You ready? Got your Bible, got my Bible, got a notebook, got a notebook, hit play. Oh, oh pause. Okay. Da, 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 da. And I share my thoughts and you're like, da, 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 da. And you share your thoughts. And I'm like, Okay, let's hit play. And then three hours later, we're like, wow, that was fun. That's kind of the vibe I want to to kind of try to capture, right? The problem is we never know what's going to happen, right? So we I picked a sermon at random. Why is dispensationalism vital? I hit play, and after an hour of doing a sermon review... We didn't really find out why dispensationalism is vital. I think we know where it's going. Okay. That's a lot of guessing, but here's where, what we really, now, to be fair, we stumbled upon a, a really a very interesting question. To be, to be fair, even though it didn't go the direction I thought it was going to go, we did stumble upon a very good discussion. And that discussion really centers around this question, not is why is dispensationalism vital? In fact, the entire first half of the sermon really was posing a different question. Why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many differences in how to interpret the Bible? Why is there so much division within Christianity? 
It put forth that question. And I think it's a very important question that should bother every Christian. Why is there so much disagreement? Why so many denominations? Why so many different interpretations? Why so much disunity? Why all the fighting and all the arguing? Why is this person telling that person they're wrong and they're saying, no, you're wrong and you're saying you're a heretic or they're saying, no, you're the heretic. It should bother every single Christian to some level. And everyone thinks, well, if people would just read the Bible, but people on both sides read the Bible and just come to radically different conclusions. So they, but they put forth their reasons. They gave three reasons why there's so many denominations. Reason number one, Satan has a dog in the fight. Satan has a dog in the fight that Satan is to blame. Number two, because men are not rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, that sounds good. Hey, if everyone would rightly divide the word of truth, then all of our problems would be resolved. Well, but everyone claims that they are rightly dividing the word of truth and that the other people aren't rightly dividing the word of truth. And the other people think they're rightly dividing the word of truth and you're not rightly dividing the word of truth. So it's easy to say we need to rightly divide, but nobody knows where those right divisions (laughs) seem to be. And then number three was because of the prophesied Christian apostasy. It's supposed to, uh, apostasy is supposed to enter into the church at a greater and greater and greater and greater amount. But the only problem is that doesn't explain why there's been disunity, division, and fighting, and no one can agree for basically 2,000 years of church history. So they did not really offer a, a good explanation for why there's so many denominations, why there's so much division. But you can kind of feel where they're going. Basically, I think what he's about to say is this, and and again, we're going to get to the sermon here in a minute and finish up this review. I think what he's basically going to say is, if everyone would just accept dispensationalism, well, then there would be no division. There would be no disunity. But someone pointed out in an email, well, wait a minute, that really wouldn't be a good answer either, because not even dispensationalists agree. There are many different kinds of dispensationalists, right? There's many different kinds of dispensationalists. So I don't know if that would really resolve the problem either. But what, but you, the, I think what's most, what stands out the most to me is I don't care what theological system you say. If everyone would grab onto this theological system, there would be agreement. That should bother everyone because that would seem to indicate that what we need is not every individual with a Bible. What we need is every individual with a theological system, clearly articulated and outlined, and everyone just adopts the system, and then we will agree about the Bible, because why? We're reading our system into the Bible, and then that destroys exegesis, and that basically becomes eisegesis. And, well, we could get into all of the issues that would result from that. But are you ready to get back to this sermon review? Again, we are reviewing a sermon called Why is Dispensationalism Vital? The first half of this sermon really had nothing to do about dispensationalism, and it put forth the question, why are there so many different denominations and so much division? It's offered three reasons. Because Satan has a dog in the fight, men do not rightly divide the word of truth, and there is a prophesied Christian apostasy that is coming upon the church. Now, we think at this point he's about to pivot from this to dispensationalism. At least that's what we think. But remember, in the sermon reviews, I don't listen to these sermons first. We do this in real time because it's more fun. So I hope you're ready. 
Here we go. Get your notes, notebooks out. If you missed part one, you need to go back and listen to it as soon as this is over. But here we go. Here is part two and our ongoing sermon review on why is dispensationalism vital. It's been fun. Let's see what happens. Here we go. So you see where denominations can come from? Church splits, other things starting up, moving away from biblical Pauline doctrine. I won't go there, but Galatians 1 is another one. Paul said that there were people preaching another gospel. Remember I said it's mostly over salvation and eternal security? People preaching another gospel, Paul said, already in the first century. And he said, listen, he said, they're anathema. A Maranatha. They're, they're anathema that's cursed. Maranatha at Christ's coming. That if you try to preach another gospel, a, a, a gospel that you're saved by baptism, a gospel that you're saved by faith plus works in the church age, that's another gospel. That's anathema, man. Again, that sounds so good. That preaches so good. But who gets to determine... What is the true gospel? Because you can get 15 people in a room and they and this person will say, no, this is the gospel. No, this is the gospel. No, this is the gospel. There are people who argue for a sacramental view of baptism. They would say they have the true gospel. People who argue against a sacramental view of baptism, they would say, no, this is the true gospel. Those who hold to a hardcore lordship view of salvation would be like, that's the true gospel. Someone who holds to what would be known as free grace would be like, no, that's the true gospel. And then one side would accuse the other side of works uh, salvation and the other side, an antinomian, and it would go on and on and on and on and on. Um but someone said that really is amazing that it was already happening in the first century. Uh, the other gospel situation. Well, you know what? It is true. It is true. It is interesting that it happened so early on. And well, then we could get into a whole bunch of issues there. But yes, but I just it's 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 maddening to me that I uh, I agree that, hey, there can only be one true gospel. The problem is everyone thinks that their gospel is the right one. So how do we get to the right one? People say the Bible. Well, everyone's, hold, everyone's holding up a Bible saying our system is right. So, so is, does that really work? And you can see where this leads to lots of problems. And this is, you know, and this goes back to major issues that even predates the Reformation about authority and and who has the right to interpret in apostolic succession? This leads to bigger theological issues. But let's see if he's going to get to dispensationalism instead of me turning this into a series on some of these other questions. We'll just see where this goes and maybe we'll circle back to some of them. You'd be cursed by God for doing that. He said, even if an angel comes. Well, an angel came to old Muhammad, right? Came and gave him a vision. Angel came to... Uh, Joseph Smith gave him another gospel and another thing. All right. So Satan has a dog in the fight, and then men were not rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. This is where a lot of the trouble comes from. Among just I mean, evangelical churches or gospel-minded, mission-minded churches, but uh, just not heeding the Bible's Instructions on how to study and show yourself approved. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. I sure know how to draw out an introduction. I tell you what. 
Never going to get through this. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now the newer Bibles remove the only command in the Bible to study. It's right here, they change it. It's not good enough to say be diligent. It's study. Now you understand what that word means, don't you? If I told Jason Sunday school, study, he knows what that word means. That's not hard to understand. If I say, Jace, be diligent, he say, be what? You got a dictionary? I don't understand what that is. But he understands study. I, I, I personally think most people know what the word diligent is. I, I, I would hope so. I, I, whoever he pointed out in the church, I'm assuming the person when they heard the word diligent, they wouldn't go, I need a dictionary. Maybe I'm wrong. He knows his people better than I do. So maybe his people don't understand the word diligent, but the fact that he's not citing a definition for the word diligent seems to tell me he himself knows that the people there <laughs> know what the word diligent means. Okay. All right. But I, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. So he wants to get into the discussion there. But again, here's the bigger issue. Listen to me carefully. It's great to say the reason we have so many denominations and so much division and so much disunity and so much disagreement is because people are not rightly dividing the word of truth. That sounds great, but let me make it very clear. That doesn't fix really anything because we can't agree on how, on what it means to rightly divide the word of truth. No one can agree on how to supposedly divide the word of truth. Even amongst dispensationalists, there is disagreement uh, because there's different kinds of dispensationalism, right? Hyper, classic, we could go through all the different, just like, I mean, the same thing is true with preterism. There's moderate, there's a classical preterism, there's a more extreme preterism. I mean, we, we, I mean, it doesn't matter. There, this is true in all kinds of theological issues and systems. So it's great to say, hey, if everyone would rightly divide the word of truth, we would all agree. And how do you rightly divide the word of truth? The way I tell you to. See, you see, well, you know what? You're right. If one person gets to tell everyone how to divide the word and everyone has to follow that system of dividing, then you're right. There would be agreement, but it doesn't work that way. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And how are we supposed to study? Rightly divide. So that's, that's part of the problem. Uh, now, a lot of people will just simply take a preacher or a priest's word for it when it comes to salvation or eternal security. Don't do that. Bad idea. Okay, now we're back to this issue that bothers me so greatly within the evangelical non-Catholic world. This bothers me to no end. And, 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 and I'm going to be repetitive here, right? And look, if he's repeating the concepts, then I'm going to repeat my analysis and, and, and my thoughts on the concepts. Because this is just, I don't know, I don't know how to kind of, in a nice way, slap Christians across the face and go, hey, think about this. Wake up. Don't you see the problem here? Don't you see we've created a system that's absolutely, utterly ridiculous if we really think about it on the surface? Think about this. So, hey, don't take a pastor's words for it. 
Don't take a priest's words for it. Okay. All right. Well, you would say, don't take a priest's word. I understand because, well, you disagree with their theological system. But when you say, don't take a pastor's word for it, he's putting forth the idea that is celebrated in the non-Catholic world. And that is, no, 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 no. The pastor doesn't have the authority. The church doesn't have the authority. It's the person sitting in the pew. They have the authority to listen to what the pastor says, open up their Bible and tell the pastor, you're wrong because this scripture says you're wrong. Well, if the people in the pew are the ones who determines and judges the correctness of the pastor's words, then why does the pastor go to seminary? Why does he go to Bible college? What is the point of gaining all of that education and putting forth all of that work and time and money just to stand behind a pulpit where someone who doesn't have that education, hasn't put in that work, can simply say, well, I read this scripture and I think you're wrong. And they could, and the pastor would be like, well, I read that scripture and I think you're wrong. And guess what? Guess who ultimately has the power? You can say all day, talk about church authority. The people in the pew have the power because they can move to have the person fired. They can, they can try to replace people on the elder board. They can just leave the church. The church can leave the denomination. I mean, there's no real control. Oh, everyone talks about, well, we've got a good system of control until you don't. Because it always requires people to submit, but people won't submit because and this system, it's the people's responsibility to critique what is being preached. Uh, okay, someone just said, it's not like I can just click a switch and be like, from this moment on, I shall rightly divide. It's not that simple. I agree. Oh, so true. So not only no one can even define what it means. You can't just go like, all of a sudden I can just rightly divide. But what's hilarious is, I guess, supposedly you go off to Bible college and seminary to learn how to rightly divide, but then someone sitting in the pew who's never done that can then tell the pastor that they're wrong. It's just the whole system. Why do we have Bible colleges, Bible institutes, and seminaries when literally people who don't need to pursue any of that education, they don't have to ever even read a systematic theology, never even read a book on hermeneutics, can so you're wrong. You're wrong. I don't have to take your word for it. You're wrong. Why? Because I I read my Bible and I believe you're wrong. That that's the system we've created, and nobody ever seems to think about maybe maybe the system that we have created, good or bad, has is a system that inherently will lead to division, disagreement. And, and, and all of these problems, like it's just, it's the system requires it because every individual is their own Pope. Every individual is their own magisterium and every individual gets to declare who is anathema and who's not anathema. And every individual gets to either support a church, leave a church, try to get someone fired, try to replace elders or try to lead that church to leave a denomination. Or they can just go start their own. The the system is, nobody wants to think about the inherent flaws with the system. Let's see where he goes. Because they can be wrong. And if there's anything you want to be right about, it's on the matter of salvation and eternal security. Uh, And so those people who follow a preacher or a priest and don't check it out for themselves from the Bible, those people are lost in their sins. And they couldn't tell you how to get to heaven from Racine if you offered them a winning lottery ticket for $30 million. 
If you gave them all night long and a flashlight, they couldn't figure it out, as one preacher was wont to say. If you gave, him a, gave them a magnifying glass, they couldn't tell you how to be saved because they're not saved themselves because they've been following a preacher or some religious leader who's not rightly dividing the word of truth. Somebody says you've got to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Now, come on. That's another gospel. Now, we need to understand dispensations, okay? So you're probably asking yourself, what's the meaning of dispensations? Okay, finally we get to dispensationalism. Fine, fine. but again, it makes it very clear that, hey, he gets to determine then who, I mean... If 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 you know if the pastor doesn't know and the people people know it's just it creates this weird it creates this weird system like I just don't know how you make this system work like he's sitting there preaching to the people but it's the people in the pew who ultimately is the final authority so it's like he can, he he can sit there and be dogmatic and make these assertive uh, these dogmatic declarations, but it really doesn't matter because anyone in the pew can go like, "Well, I disagree with you because I've read the Bible." And do they can 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 they disagree with you if they don't know dispensations? Do you before you listen to their disagreement with you? Do you check to see? Well, do you know how to rightly divide the word of truth? And who gets to determine who's rightly dividing the word of truth? Like, it just, it all preaches so good. But when you take it to its logical conclusion and try to say, how does this work in practice? It literally is just a million popes running around, all declaring that they're right and everyone else is wrong. And it's kind of spiritual anarchy. It's kind of spiritual chaos. But obviously now he's going to come in. He's going to say, okay, all of that chaos, all that confusion, all of that doubt, all of that disagreement, it can all go away if we learn dispensations. So he's going to break it down. I don't know how, how I have a, I don't know what he's going to do here. Let, let's just wait and see. I've got my guesses and someone made a joke. Oh, the word. Yeah, finally we get to the word. Finally. But even, I, but I will, hey, I understand I am not going to criticize him for this because he got started and he he took he even realized somewhere in the middle of that like he said man I draw these uh you know introductions out way too long even he realized what he had done he kind of got caught up into some of this he really got caught up into talking about this and then all of a sudden he realized halfway through the sermon what have I done? I've messed up. And I look, I've done the same thing. I, I'm like, I'm going to preach on this today. And then I'll start my introduction. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I got this idea. I got this idea. And next thing I know, I'm like, oh no, we're 40 minutes into the hour. What have I done? So I'm not going to criticize a preacher for that because it is easy to do that. When you, especially if you're reading and studying all the time, at any moment you could just start going. And so he, he, all of a sudden in his mind, he's like, oh, why are there so many d- different denominations? I got three reasons. And then he just started elaborating on each one. And maybe he was going to do that really quick, like a five or 10 minute introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, why is there so many denominations? Because of these three reasons. And what is the solution? The solution is for people to learn dispensationalism because it is vital to maintaining a proper unity. Like, I understand he maybe in his mind, he thought it was going to be short, but then he got carried away. And I understand that. And I'd rather a pastor get carried away um, than not be carried away almost because I, that there's a little passion there. There's a little bit of zeal there. So, but let's see what he's going to now try to provide the answer. And the answer to this supposedly is, is dispensationalism. Let's see how he approaches it. 
A dispensation, as we'll use it in this study, simply refers to the way that God deals with men in different ages. There's a typo there. How God deals with men in different ages. Okay, now this is interesting. He's defining a dispensation as the different ways in which God deals with men. All right? Now, if we go to the more classic route, which would be, say, Schofield 1917, I'm going to go to the Schofield Study Bible. Remember, he defined dispensation this way. He defined it as the different ways in which God deals with men, the different ways in which God deals with the human race or or with people. Schofield defined it, a dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Schofield focused on the aspect of specific period of time where there is testing. He's dealing with more the idea, the different ways in which God deals with people. Now, you can see if you think that there is a distinction there that matters or not. I just wanted you to, to, note, to note that. Let's continue. So memorize this phrase. God deals with men differently in different ages. That's a good working definition for dispensations. So he defines dispensation as God deals with men differently in different ages and different times. So he has the different time part there, but he just, he wants to focus that God deals with men differently. Schofield went with different, different ages, different times in which God tests. There are tests in the dispensations. So you can, you, see, once again, what, you see what I'm trying to demonstrate? Wait a minute. If we're going to rightly divide, well, then don't we have to have some agreement on even definition? Do we have an agreement on what disp- the different dispensations are? We seem to all agree that it's a period of time, but is it a period of time that just demonstrates God dealing in a different way? Or does it demonstrate a time in which God is testing? Just something to think about. God's dispensing information to men all throughout the course of history. And it, and it comes in different covenants, and it comes in different ages, okay? So you say, what's, what's a dispensation? Okay, that's why I got it up here. So there, these are just basic ones, okay? You have before the law. That's Adam and Eve in the garden created there, created perfect, created without sin, before they sinned and were lost in their sin. You have before the law. That, that, that carries from 4004 B.C. and goes right on up to 1491 B.C. And then at that time, God gave the law to Moses. Okay, I think he's using Usher's dating. I think he's using Usher's dating. I'm going to look here. He's also giving this, he just has the dispensation before the law. Remember, uh, Schofield had the dispensation of innocency, uh, conscience, human government, a a lot of things before the law. But um, I don't remember what year he said, according to Schofield, and I think he was using Usher, Usher's dating, uh, the dispensation of the law 
happens in uh, Exodus 19.8, and I believe he has it as 1491 B.C. I believe he has it at 1491 B.C. Not that, not that it's, not that it, well, I guess this is what matters. This is important. Just to note that even within dispensationalism, there's these modifications and they're, they're the evolving of the system itself. It has changed over time just so that you you know that. And I, I, he just seems to be speaking dogmatically like, this is the way it is. And it's like, well, you do realize it, it was that the way it always was in dispensationalism? So, all right, but let, let's see where he goes with this. And he started a nation there, the nation of Israel, and uh, he gave them all kinds of laws to live by. He started the nation of Israel in 1490-something B.C.? Is that, that's interesting. He, he's, he's starting the formation of the nation in and really, the, with the giving of the law, that's that's kind of interesting. All right, just just something for you to think about. All right, uh, let's 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 continue. And things that they had to follow, and so that period there starts something where now it's during the law. So before the law, you didn't have Exodus, you know, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So before the law, what did they do? During the law, what did they do? Well, there was a change. There was a change in what God did and what He instructed men to do. God deals with men differently in different ages. So can you... I mean, everyone can agree that there is at least this one division, this rightly dividing the word, one division. There's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? So everyone in here is a dispensationalist at least to that extent, you recognize there's a difference between the two parts of your Bible. Well, God dealt with Moses and he dealt with the children of Israel differently under the law, during that law, than he did after Christ showed up. The zero marks the birth of Christ uh, in the year of our Lord. Um, And then you have the cross. So when the Christ shows up, He's crucified, and when he's crucified, that's the end of the law. And that's the end of the law for righteousness, Paul says. You'd have to read the book of Romans. And then the church is started. God turns away from the nation of Israel. They reject him. He turns away from them temporarily. He'll come back at the tribulation and deal with Israel. But during this church age, we are not under the law, Paul teaches us. We're not to live like a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the commandments to be saved. Read Acts chapter 15. Study to show yourself approved. I'm sorry I'm pointing at you. That's, that's bad manners. Study to show yourself approved. This is after the law. We're not under the law. Okay? Church age. God deals with men differently in the church age. He dispenses new information. Does it primarily through Paul. Then you have... Where we are, 2023, with our little church building. And right here, the Lord's about ready to come back. And He's going to come back. We're going to be raptured up to meet the Lord in the air. Then we'll begin this little black section here. That's the Great Tribulation period. And during the Tribulation period, God deals with men differently during the Tribulation period than He does during the church age. Okay? 
And then after the tribulation, you have the beginning of the millennial kingdom. That's the kingdom age. So these are dispensations. The dispensation of, of innocence and human government. Those are in here before the law. Okay, so he is, he is, so now he's, he just mentions innocency and human government. He didn't mention conscience. So, but he's kind of breaking it down before the law, during the law, after the law. So he's kind of just doing a general, he's not really, he's not going into much detail here about them. So I, I, I mean, I'm curious where he's going to go here, right? Because the whole question is, is dispensationalism vital? So he's, it seems like his goal here is not really to help you understand the dispensations. He's not going too in depth here, but maybe he's going to dedicate the last whole part of this and trying to show how these dispens, the understanding of the dispensations is absolutely vital to supposedly bring about understanding and to re- eliminate all of the confusion and disagreement. We'll, we'll see where he's going to go with this. The dispensation of the law right there with Moses and the nation of Israel. Now the dispensation of the church age. Then you have the tribulation period, and then the kingdom age. Just so that you know, Schofield did not use that the 1917 version of dispensationalism. He did not call it the church age. If you remember correctly, uh, he gave the dispensations of this. The first dispensation was of innocency. All right. So you had uh, innocency. Then you have conscience. Then you have human government, then you have promise, then you have law, then you have grace. Now, grace becomes what is called the church age later on in like the 1960 version of Schofield, uh, and then kingdom. So he keeps using the phrase church age. Schofield in 1917 did not use that. He He used it as the dispensation of grace, just showing you the the differences here. All right, where the King of Kings returns. We're going to read a passage there. Um, and I don't know that we'll make it to it tonight. But um, let me just show you this. Let's just, let's just skip all the way to the end. Would you like to do that? Does anybody here like to read the end of the book? Okay. It's not the end of the Bible, but it's the end of my study. Look at Isaiah 66. Now, you want to study the Bible and rightly divide it. That means you want to put things where they belong. Now, I want you to read Isaiah 66, and I want you to ask yourself, should I do what it's telling me to do here? Look at Isaiah 66. Now, I had like a nice logical lesson to go through tonight, but we didn't make it. But I want you to look at Isaiah 66, and I'll just teach you these principles with this one passage. Those are five different ages, and I want you to know that God dealt, dealt with men differently in those different ages that are past, and He will deal with men differently in the ages that are to come, or dispensations. Uh, you could use that word interchangeably. There's a dispensation of the tribulation period and dispensation of the kingdom age to come, and God will deal with men differently in those two different dispensations. So, Isaiah 66, and look at verse 
Okay, now, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Now, I do feel bad for him. I do feel, whether we agree or disagree, I feel bad for any preacher because clearly he's gotten into this and now he realizes he's looking at the clock or his watch and he realizes, what have I done, right? I had this logical lesson. I had it all. You can almost hear his frustration. And I always feel bad because... Man, there's nothing worse than having an idea and how you think the sermon is going to go and you get 30, 40 minutes into it and realize you've blown it. There's, I, there is, it's so maddening. You just want to like, you want to like yell and just say, we're going to start over. Uh, so I feel bad for him because he obviously had a way to lay this out. And, and as a, someone who's preached for so many years, there's a part of me who goes, okay, I think I know where you were going to go with this. I think I know what you were going to do. And I do feel bad. So I, I'm not going to criticize that in any way, shape, perform. That's just wrong. That's petty. That's not. Um, he, he obviously, because he's run out of time, he doesn't really have a lot of, uh, a time here or ability to really try to break down dispen- the dispensations, maybe the way Schofield did, or even try to explain the differences or, or give dates. Or he, he just has to kind of say, here's the basic idea. God deals differently with people in different ages. He, he, he skips the testing concept. I don't know why, but uh, he, he doesn't show here was the test and here's where they failed the test and here was how things changed. He doesn't do any of that, but I am, I am grateful for this opportunity. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to hand us Isaiah 66. All right. Now, as he begins to talk about Isaiah 66, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to put your thinking caps on because this is a perfect opportunity for us to test my hypotheses that I have put forth now throughout our entire study of dispensationalism. I say over and over and over again, one of the major problems in American Christianity and Christianity around the world is that whether we like it or not, our theological system becomes our hermeneutic. In other words, as a Christian, when you become a Christian, you're taught what to believe. Believe this about baptism, believe this, believe this. You're being given a theological system. Now you're taught to believe that. Someone will open a verse and read it and say, see, see, it's right there. And so from that point forward, when you open the Bible and read it, what do you see in the Bible? Your theological system. Because now that that it becomes the hermeneutical system, it becomes the way you interpret the Bible. You interpret the Bible in a way that is consistent with your theological system. That is not the way it's supposed to work. What you should be taught first is how to read and study the Bible, giving study methods. You should be encouraged to get into in-depth study where you're doing a biographical method or a topical method or a thematical method or a chapter analysis or chapter survey or book background. And you're using these methods. And then from that arises your theology and your system. But we do it backwards. So you you're given a system and then you are like, well, that's what the Bible says because you're, you see it through the lens of your system. And the minute someone says something different that goes against your system, it's like, ah, 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 red alert, red alert, red alert. He's wrong. He's wrong because your system is saying it's wrong, but you have a hard time trying to get people to lay aside their system and actually go work on the text. When you say, oh, you want to disagree with me? Well, here you go. Here's the study method. You go look up every passage. You do this, you do this, you you do this and then we'll talk. They don't want to do that. They just want to say you're wrong because, or they'll just hop on Google and do a search for an article that agrees with them. Well, all you're doing is now just reinforcing the theological system that you are interpreting the Bible from. We've got to stop allowing our theology to be our hermeneutic. Hermeneutical principles trump theological systems. Oh, now that's going to get me in trouble. 
So he's going to give us Isaiah 66. As you hear him deal with Isaiah 66, you tell me, is he allowing the text to speak or is he imposing his theological system upon the text? Is Are we about to hear the text being exegeted or are we about to hear his theological system being read into the text, which is eisegesis? You can make the, you don't need me here, right? At this point, I'm just going to go downstairs and I'm just going to get some, okay, no, I'm not going to do that. But in reality, I just want to hit play and walk away. Like if I was, if I was doing a hermeneutics class right now, I'd be like, okay, class, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to play this. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to the teacher's lounge and have a snack. I'll come back. When I come back, I want you to have a page written out telling me, did he do exegesis or did he do eisegesis? Did he pull from the text or did he simply say, hey, here's, here's what the text says based off the theological system. Does he impose his theological system upon the text or does he pull from the text the reality of a theological system. That is a massive distinction and people in many cases cannot determine which way, what, which one they're doing. Here, your, your job class, I, every podcast, I always treat you like you're students in a class. I know. And I, and I always want you to, but I almost want to just give you Isaiah 66 and go, you go work on it and then come back and, but right, we're not going to do that. Right, here we go. Let's see what happens. All right. Here, Isaiah 66, it's 24 verses. So we may go a little long here. I don't know how how much he's going to dig into this, but you you just look and see how he handles this, all right? Here we go. 23. So the book of Isaiah, if you don't know it, it's 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 laid out dispensationally just like the the whole Bible is. So Isaiah 1, there's 66 chapters, right? How many books are there in the Bible? Isaiah 1 lines up with Genesis. Isaiah 66 lines up with Revelation. Please note, he just made an assertion. Isaiah 1 lines up with Genesis. Isaiah 66 lines up with the book of Revelation. Not the book of Revelations. The book of Revelation. All right, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, just for theological accuracy there. We want to make sure we stress that it's the book of Revelation. All right. So um, this is very important. Now, is that, did he, do you derive that from reading the text? Do you read Isaiah and go, that lines up with Genesis. That lines up with the book of Revelation. Or does someone tell you it does? And then when you read it, you're like, oh, I see it lines up with Genesis. And I see it. Which comes first? The system that you read now into the text, and then you see what you read into it, or does this come from the actual reading of the text? All right. Now, it looks like he's... I was hoping he was going to work through the entire chapter. Looks like he's just going to work on verse 23. I don't know. We'll see where he's going to go here. I was hoping for just going through the whole chapter and see how he was going to work this. I thought he was going to go through... I I had an idea of what he was going to do. Now, I don't know for sure. So, we'll wait and see. Uh, if you didn't know that, Isaiah 66, and it's and you'll find parallels throughout the whole book of Isaiah that, that go right along with the Bible. The Bible itself is laid out in a dispensational order. In the beginning, you have Adam and Eve. At the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, what do you have? You have the tribulation and the kingdom. So, uh, Isaiah 66, and then notice there in verse number 23. Let's start reading there. And it shall come to pass. All right. Has it happened yet? No. He's saying this is a future thing. 
Now, please note, he's not offering us any context here, right? And it shall come to pass. Immediately he reads the words, and it shall come to pass. And he just tells everyone it hasn't happened yet. Based off what? It hasn't come to pass for the people who originally received the letter. What are you basing it off of? Now, if he has a textual reason to prove that it hasn't come to pass yet, then okay. I'm assuming he's going to give us a textual reason. Just know, just because you read and and it shall come to pass does not mean it's future for you. And it shall come to pass means it was future for the original recipients, which was thousands of years ago. So, I mean, that's just a basic hermeneutical rule. Whenever it speaks of something future tense, it was future for the original recipients. It could be past history for us. You have to read the text and go, what happened? Oh, wait a minute. I don't think that's ever happened. Okay, well then clearly it's still future. Or, ooh, I think right there, 70 AD or 325 BC, whatever the year may be. I, I, right there, I think, I think, I think it was fulfilled. Okay, I, okay, back off. Okay, don't look for a future fulfillment. That, that's like a general, just basic rule of, of reading and interpretation. But he just immediately just tells everyone, and it shall come to pass. See? Hasn't happened yet. He just imposed that. He didn't offer any textual basis for that claim. Now, maybe he's about to give it, but at this point, he hasn't. Let's see what happens. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another. Now, stop there. This is a lunar calendar that he's talking about. We don't follow a lunar calendar. Who does? Nation of Israel. If you study the Bible, they follow a lunar calendar. We follow a solar calendar, right? Okay, from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath. All right, I'll stop there. Do we meet on the Sabbath? No. I heard there's some Seventh-day Baptists. I don't know how they get that fouled up in the Bible that they're meeting on the Sabbath, but there are some Seventh-day Baptists. You know why they get that messed up? They're not rightly dividing the word of truth. Anyways, on the Sabbath, from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh. All right, who's that include? Everybody, right? Everybody. All means all. A double L. All flesh shall. Now, I would challenge you to do this. He says, all means all. How many times is the word all? used in scripture. Let's just take a look. Open the Blue Letter Bible app. See, these are these just, pastors love to just make assertions from the pulpit, just love to make assertions. And and sometimes it drives me crazy when they do this, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you the word all Uh, all occurs in 4,664 verses in the KJV. All occurs 4,664 times. Now, look, the only way to really end this argument is for you to go through all 4,464 verses, 
and look up every use of the all, when it says all, does it always mean every single person in the world? Or does all sometimes have a limited meaning? Now, I'm not saying all here should have a limited meaning. I'm just saying you cannot say that every time you see the word all, it means every single person in the world. Sometimes all is all of a specific group, all of a specific nation, all of a specific region, all of a specific group, all of a specific city, all of a specific family, all of a specific tribe. You got to, you got all is, has got to be understood in its context. Uh, if I go to the first use of all is in Genesis one twenty six. I'm going to go here. I'm going to see, I'm going to go to Genesis one twenty six. It's the first time it's used. Hang on. And uh, and overall, it says an overall. And that is the word all. It's, uh, it's this Hebrew word, just so that you know. In the Hebrew, it's this Hebrew word. Strong's H3605. Coal. 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 Okay, wait, hang on. Coal. Coal. <laughs> okay, that that try that little distinction there, but all right, coal. I'm just going to go this way. Um, properly, the whole, hence all, in or every, uh, in the singular only, but often in a plural sense, in all manner, altogether, any manner, enough, every one place thing, house, however, as many as no thing ought whatsoever. The whole. Okay, goes through all kinds. The outline of biblical usage: all the whole. All the whole of any, each, every, anything, totality, everything. All right. So there's lots of different ways it could be used. So I'm just saying if someone makes a dogmatic assertion that all always means everyone, you may want to go, are you sure? Are you sure? Uh, In fact, I'm going to look at something. I'm going to look at something here. I could be wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to type in all. Hang on. I'm going to change my search range. I'm going to go to, I'm just going to go to the gospel. All right. Um, Okay. Uh, Let's see here. I'm looking here. I'm, I'm looking Okay. Uh, there's probably a couple of scriptures here. Yeah. If you just look up all in the New Testament, just the Gospels, um, that's that's a lot less verses to look up. That's um, 364. But I think there's a couple of verses where it seems to say, like, all the world went out. And it's like, well, not all the world went out. Obviously, not everyone in the world went out. Like, there, there's times clearly the all is being used in like a general sense. So just just because it says all. So, so if he wants to break down principles, let me break down some principles for you. Number one, and it shall come to pass does not mean that's always future for you and I reading it in 2023. It means it was future for the original recipients. Second, um, and it came to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Now, the fact that it says all flesh, it seems to qualify the all. You may have an argument there, but just you can't just make an argument that all always means all. When you see the word all, look for the context and try to determine exactly which all is referring to and don't just say, well, all means everyone. 
doesn't always mean that way, right? You you have to, this is just basic reading skills, all right? Let's see what else he does here. Now come to worship before me, saith the Lord. All right, now listen. This Friday night, uh, right after dinner time, I want you guys, I want somebody to go down to Pomeroy and, and start down the sidewalk, down Pomeroy with a sandwich, sandwich sign on, okay? And tell them all, put, put Antiquity Baptist Church on one side, put our meeting time, we're going to meet this Friday night, 6 p.m. for the Sabbath, okay? It goes from Friday night, 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. Tell them tonight, this Friday at 6 p.m., we're all going to meet up here. If there's not enough room in the building, we'll just surround the building, okay? And tell them all that we're going to meet here to worship the Lord, and let's just see if they all come. Do you think they will? On the back, you know, tell them, just follow me to Antiquity Baptist Church. And just, because that's what it says, all flesh, all flesh will come to worship. Now, does God mince words? Or does He mean what He says? He says, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord, Jehovah. And they shall go forth. Who? The worshipers. As they're leaving to come to the worship, or as they're leaving to go back home from the worship, they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die. Now, guys, the Bible says what it means, it means what it says. And Jesus says, during the millennial kingdom age, there will be a lake of fire. He said it in his own preaching, Isaiah saying it there. There will be a lake of fire on earth. And the offenders, those that reject the Lord, reject His worship and reject His law, says He's going to rule with a rod of iron. They will be burning in a lake of fire on the earth. And people who are coming and going from from worship will be reminded about how important it is. To follow the word of the king. Whoa. So in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a lake of fire on earth. And when you're leaving worship or going to worship, you're going to walk by watching the people burn. Okay. I've been a Christian for a very long time. I think I can honestly say I have never heard this once in my entire life. I don't know if I have ever heard this. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you want just one? Yeah, I, I'm, 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 I could start reading commentaries here. I could start reading commentaries here. Now, remember, this whole thing is why is there so many different denominations? Because people don't rightly divide. How do you rightly divide? Well, you read Isaiah 66, and when it says that all flesh will come to worship, this supposedly means every single person in the world, they're all going to come worship. And when they're going away from worship, they're going to look and there's going to be a lake of fire on earth during the millennial kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, if this does not demonstrate where your system becomes 
becomes your hermeneutical system and you start reading into the text, this is maybe the greatest example I've ever seen handed to us on a silver platter. This is exact, this is eisegesis. He's reading his system into it. I don't even know if this is a typical dispensational understanding of Isaiah 66, but I think you can immediately grab some commentaries and they're going to start pointing you to different historical uh, um, fulfillment of this and not there in the future. But he's just saying this dogmatically. He's not even, he's not even allowing for like, hey, there's like these 50, there's 30 commentaries and nobody agrees with this on this. Like who agrees that this is a reference to the millennial kingdom and you're going to be in the millennial kingdom and you're going to be going to worship or coming back from worship and you're going to look over and there's going to be people burning in the lake of fire. Or there's going to be at least the lake of fires there and you're going to at least see the lake of fire. I don't, I, I don't, I'd like, uh, okay, let's continue. Now, guys, that's what it says. They will look at those who have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die. That is, when they are put into that fire, their bodies will be destroyed, their souls will be there in some kind of a soulish form, but they will turn into some kind of a worm that will not die and perish. Now, either you're going to believe what you're looking at or you're not. You see, that's how the apostasy starts. People don't believe the book. Neither shall. They're going to turn into some kind of worm. Oh, I'm. Oh, boy, 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 boy. I, I. <sighs> okay. There, there's so much we could. We, we may have to do a serious work on Isaiah 66. We may have to do. Some serious work on Isaiah 66, ladies and gentlemen. This may, this may demand that we have to do work on Isaiah 66. All right, let, let's continue. Let's continue. Their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto who? All flesh. Now, guys, <laughs> flesh. He's talking about earth dwellers. Flesh. If you read the book of Isaiah, you'd see it in the context. Earth dwellers going to worship. And uh, they're going to worship in Jerusalem. And so there's going to be that lake of fire. Alright, so now as you look at that, if you, if you look at the back of your page, we'll wrap this up. If you look at the back of your page, I want you to notice there's three bullet points at the top. Historical, spiritual, and doctrinal. All right. Bet you didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? There's a lot of things in the Bible that we don't know that they're there, and the Lord just teaches us line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. You can't understand the Lord, not really. God is a consuming fire, the Bible says. He's a God of amazing love and grace and mercy. And he's also a God of judgment. And he says, I will by no means, you know, pardon the guilty. Uh, Every soul is mine, he says. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's an eternal death. And so God is perfect in his love and in his mercy and his ability to forgive and receive to himself all who will come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. And God is also perfect in his wrath. You can't understand that. He's sinless in his wrath and his execution execution of judgment. 
You and I can't get that. One day we will have a renewed mind. One day Jesus said, you'll know even as you are known. And so we'll have the mind of Christ and we will see things differently. And guys, what I'm just saying, God is holy and we're not. You can't understand this stuff and neither can I. I can't understand a God who would put somebody into hell for eternity. Now they go from hell to the lake of fire, which is different from that one that I was looking at. The eternal lake of fire after creation. So you go from the fire to the firing pan. I I can't understand that. The older you get, it's harder to take, isn't it? I mean, let's just be real. It's harder to take the older that you get that the God of the Bible is fierce in His wrath. But we believe it. And we take God at His word. And we'll understand it better by and by. And there'll be a day when we can say with Jesus all around the throne, the great white throne, when we'll be able to say, Alleluia. He's, God is right in all that He does. And right now, we, we can't understand that. But I guess if we believed it a little bit more, we'd get busy about trying to reach people. But here's the historical setting. In the book of Isaiah, how does that fit historically? So, when I say historical, I mean past, present, and future. As you read the Bible, where does it fit? This obviously fits in the future. I mean, that's real clear. It's easiest to fix the historical setting. That's one of the easier ones. The spiritual one is pretty easy. So, the spiritual is our walk with God, or our everyday life, our practical application. From the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 23 and 24, what is the practical application? God is serious when He talks about judgment. And making an example out of people. So, get busy trying to win your family and your friends to Christ. Okay? That's uh, spiritual application. Doctrinal application. Now, doctrine is teachings. Teachings such as the doctrine of salvation, judgments, the kingdom, the end times, the nation of Israel, the giving of the law. So, God gives men instructions in every age or every dispensation. What is the doctrine? Okay? This is the toughie. That's the hard one. Doctrinally, does Isaiah 66 apply to us, the church, in the church age? So doctrinally, when we're trying to we'll look at these three questions, and then we'll be, we'll be dismissed. Doctrinally, does that go right here? Are people worshiping on the Sabbath here? I mean, all flesh? No. It's got to go here. And it certainly wasn't here. All flesh wasn't worshiping and there wasn't a lake of fire on the earth that, that all flesh could walk by and see. So we can get the history of it. We can get the practical spiritual meaning. But the doctrinal meaning, well, that means it, it applies to somebody else doctrinally. It points to somebody else, not to the church age, not to me, not to you. It points to somebody else. Let me just say this and close. Somebody has said it this way. All of the Bible is written for you, but not all of the Bible is written to you. And that's catchy. But it falls short. It misses the mark. All of the Bible is written for you. This is God's love letter to you. You can read it and treasure every page, and you should. Read all of the Bible. It's all for you. You can get a spiritual blessing out of every page of this blessed book. You can get a spiritual blessing, something to help you. 
and feed you. Even out of Leviticus. I know it seems impossible sometimes, but... I'm going to challenge that. I'm not going to say all is for you. I'm going to say all the Bible is God's revelation. And we are called to read all of it, study it, and that all of it is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to you. All scripture is profitable to you. I'm not going to say it's for me or to me. It's it's for me in the sense that it's profitable, but it's not all written to me. It's not all written about me. It's it's all for me in the sense that it's all profitable for me. All scripture is profitable for me because that's what the scripture says, right? So I just, that's how I would approach that. Even out of Leviticus, but not all of it's to you. Not all of it's addressed to you. Sometimes you're reading something and you're reading somebody else's mail. Not all of it's to you. Now, some people balk at that and say, uh-uh, I won't accept that. Listen, not all of it's to you doctrinally. It can all be to you in the historical understanding, in the spiritual understanding, but not all of it's to you doctrinally. Yeah. Right. It's different. Yeah, you're in the Old Testament. There's something different happening. The church hasn't happened yet. Yeah. If, right. And if you say to me, Pastor, I just can't swallow that, can't accept that. All right, then. We're going to change our service times, and we're going to start meeting at Friday night at 6 p.m. and Saturday morning for the Sabbath. We've been doing it wrong the whole time. Of course, that's not true. Because doctrinally, that doesn't apply to us. Yes. Yes. Right. And so now you have that. You have that word of caution that I put in there. You have that. I want you to chew on that. Think about that. You're in the church age, and it's different. We'll look at maybe another example. I know we will eventually. But any any questions about that? I'm finally going to close. Any questions about that or anything? Um, it's right. If you'll do that, if you'll rightly divide the word of truth, if you're reading something and you're saying, that seems to contradict what it says over here, you found something you need to rightly divide. And you follow what Paul says. Paul said, be ye followers of me. That means we follow Paul in doctrine and in his manner of life, his ministry. We should have a Pauline ministry in this church. Um, I, can't, I can't go on. But if you find something that contradicts in your Bible, come to me and I'll help you. Put it where it goes. If you rightly divide the Word of God, you will show yourself a workman that is approved. And you don't need to be ashamed before the Lord. You can be approved. Alright, let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... There you have it. Um, he didn't... I, I guess... I, I... I guess his answer is, why is dispensationalism vital? It's vital because there's so many different denominations and disagreements and disputes is because people don't rightly divide. And how you rightly divide is to do so dispensationally. And if you rightly divide it dispensationally, then you'll know that Isaiah 66 is about people in the millennial kingdom on their way to worship. And they're going to look over and there's a lake of fire on earth with people burning. I, 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 I... 
And he didn't bother to offer any context or anything there. That's his, that's the best example he gave us. And I don't know, like, I didn't, we didn't have time to really dig into Isaiah 66, but now it's like, we're going to have, we're we're not going to be able to walk away from that. The only problem is you can't study Isaiah 66 without studying probably 65, probably would have to study 65 and six. Well, first we would need to do a book background study of Isaiah. We would need to do at least a general book background information, gather that once we have kind of like the who, what, where, when, how of Isaiah, then jump to 65, making sure we're not disconnecting it from 64 in case we need to look back and then look at 65 and 66 and see what conclusion we can come to. Without and for without reading into it, a system, see, yes, a system and his system says Isaiah 66, that's the millennial kingdom. So then guess what is he sees? He sees the millennial kingdom. He didn't tell me how he he took that from the text. He just read it directly into the text. And that's what I've been trying to tell you and warn you about, allowing your theological system to become your hermeneutic. You cannot do that. All right. That, that got interesting. That Isaiah 66. Now, if you've heard that before, let me know. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I would love to get what you've been taught about Isaiah 66 in the past. Let me know, because I'm a little baffled here, uh, but we're at one hour and almost 10 minutes. So we we can't obviously do anything now, but we we will circle back to it. All right, there you go. That was a, a special Two hours plus of sermon review and our ongoing series, Dispensationalism 101. Please go back and listen to everything else we've done in this series. We will finish up this series on Sunday. Well, hopefully on Sunday, we've got to finish a couple of covenants that Schofield outlined. Then we're going to do kind of a historical background overview a little bit, then maybe summarize with the basic tenets of dispensationalism, and then we'll be done. Remember, we're about to engage in a Bible study exercise on the tabernacle. So we got that coming up. Uh, we have, uh, we're still working on our series on sanctification. We're still working our series on law and gospel. Oh, we're doing the Bible pop quiz at least three times a week. We got a lot going on here. So uh, make use of all of the content. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Everyone have a great day. God bless.